As the historian Dan Flores writes in his new book, Wild New World, for about 400 years, Europeans had been in the Americas, imposing their will on the land, the animals, and the native people. And for all that time, the continent's most recent arrivals were ignorant of a vast history that preceded them, that preceded even the people they were displacing, ignorant of a deep history of human presence here, and a story of our relationship with American animals. It's 1908 on the Colorado-New Mexico border. In August of that year, a huge thunderstorm building up over the southern Rocky Mountains and drifting out over the Great Plains unleashes a flash flood in the dry Cimarron River. And the dry Cimarron River goes right through the middle of the town of Folsom, New Mexico, which is a town that in 1908 has grandiose aspirations for itself. And the little town of Folsom had a telephone operator named Sally Rook, 66 years old, who getting word that this impending disaster was sweeping down the dry Cimarron, immediately got on her switchboard and contacted everybody she could reach in town and in the surrounding area, hundreds of people, and alerted them to flee. Sally Rook ended up saving most of the people of Folsom, but she herself got swept away by the flood, which tore through Folsom and destroyed half the town. In the wake of that flood in Folsom, about a week later, an African-American cowboy named Charles McJunkin was out riding fence line for the ranch he was working for, looking for places on the fence that needed repair. And he happened upon a freshly cut chasm in the slope below this high mesa. And as McJunkin reined his horse up, its hooves sinking and sliding in the mud, he looked down into this freshly opened chasm and saw something that basically changed the story of America forever. What McJunkin saw in the bottom of this new chasm were the bones of animals that he realized were larger than anything he had ever seen before. And so he started trying to alert people in the nearby communities about something that might be a grand, undiscovered moment in the history of North America. Within a few years, McJunkin had passed away in the early 1920s. But by that time, his story had reached a man named Jesse Figgins, who headed up the Denver Museum of Natural History. And Jesse Figgins hoping to find bones of animals that he could use as museum displays, took a crew of archaeologists and paleontologists down to this site, now known as the Folsom site, and they began excavating this site and finding the remains of giant animals we now call bison antiquus. That first summer, they discovered something really striking and unusual. Scattered among the remains 
points, not arrow points, but probably spear points, are possibly the points of the darts from what we call addle addles, spear throwers, lying at the site and of a kind that no one had really seen before. They were about three or four inches long, beautifully chipped out of a reddish colored flint. And at the base on each side, there was a flute that had been chipped out that appeared to be a method for attaching the points to some sort of spear or dart. But none of those points was anything but a loose dirt find. And so that didn't really tell anyone very much other than that probably people using those kind of points had been at the site before. But at the second excavation in 1927, the second year, Figgins and his crew happened on big history pay dirt because what they found embedded in the bones of one of these animals was a point of the kind they had seen before, except this time clearly indicating that the animal had been killed while alive by human hunters. In effect, what Figgins and his crew following the lead of Charles McJunkin had found was evidence that humans had been in America at a time when extinct animals had been present and they had hunted and killed them. It was, in other words, a way to give America an antiquity like that of Europe and Asia, places where discoveries such as this had been made in the previous decades. It turned out that the Folsom site was a place where humans had hunted and killed extinct American animals 10,450 years ago. What the Folsom site indicated was that humans had arrived in America as predators of American animals. And what this implied to everyone really who knew about the site was that humans had probably been a threat to America's animals from the moment we had first showed up on the continent. Wild New World explores that story through vast stretches of time down to the present day. That's Dan Flores. This is Radio West. I'm Benjamin Bombard, sitting in for Doug Fabrizio. In his new book, Wild New World, Flores lays out the complex relationship between humans and animals in America, or the land that would come to be known as America. That's because this is a relationship that goes back at least 13,000 years, and it's a story that goes back even further than that. Flores is a writer and professor emeritus of Western history at the University of Montana, He says he wrote this latest book because, as he's traveled and lived across the country, he began to notice a hole in our collective knowledge. People just didn't seem to know how rich and diverse the animal life on this continent once was, or what happened to it. I'm not even talking about 10,000 years or more ago. 
when we did have uh, animals like mammoths and mastodons and saber-toothed cats. I mean, within the last 150 years, I mean, people kind of know that once there were a whole lot of bison and then there were hardly any. We don't know that America once had a northern hemisphere penguin, the great auk. We don't know that only a century ago, passenger pigeons, the most numerous bird on earth, were still flying through American skies. We didn't know, we don't know still that as late as the 1940s and perhaps even later, there were still our American candidate for the largest woodpecker on earth, the ivory bill. So that lack of historical memory, including back into time when uh, humans first found the Americas, the last great continents that humans discovered, is something that I wanted to try to restore but so we could have some context for who we are, not so that we can necessarily sit around and gnash our teeth and mourn about what mm. we've lost, but so that we can at least confront the future with a good sense of who we are and where we've been across time. In mm. that historical memory, or maybe the, the land's historical memory, as you write in your book, in some ways begins 66 million years ago when a giant asteroid strikes Earth. That's right. And part of the world we'd come to call America, it was right in the asteroid's crosshairs, and it wipes the slate more or less clean of animal life. And can you, can you describe what happens in the wake of that asteroid collision? I mean, we're talking tens of millions of years here, so it's maybe a lot to ask, but can you describe the burgeoning of animal life that takes place in the, um, in the wreckage of so much animal life? And, and these, as you say, distinctly American contributions to Earth's life that arise. The Chicxulub impact is famously known, of course, as the asteroid that wipes out the dinosaurs. And that's sort of when we look back at it, our imagination tends to go backwards in time uh, to think about dinosaurs. But what I was trying to do with my description of, of this fifth extinction in America, is what we call the fifth extinction, was to look at what happened in the wake of it down the timeline approaching the present to try to recreate how America, North America specifically, acquired the bestiary of animals that humans found when we arrived many millions of years later. And so the asteroid was seven and a half miles wide and it was traveling at 27,000 miles an hour. And so when it hits Earth, it wiped out 75% of living things, took out the age of dinosaurs and the reptiles and ushered in the age of mammals. And North America at this point, through two processes, one of them, uh, our own evolution uh, of forms on the continent, and the other process, the migration of creatures from other parts of the world mm -hmm. across land bridges that occasionally connect North America to Eurasia and even to, to Europe. Through those processes, we end up creating this distinctive bestiary of animals. They're, interestingly enough, not really animals that we think of so much as being associated with North America. For instance, mm -hmm. one of the earliest forms that evolves in North America are the horses. Horses emerged about 56 million years ago, only 10 million years after the asteroid strike. And ramify and evolve over millions and millions of years to the point where they spread to the rest of the world, crossing the land bridges into Asia and into Africa and into Europe. 
while sometime around eight or 9,000 years ago becoming extinct here so that we don't mm-hmm. think of horses as being an American animal. Camels are another product of North America that follow the same kind of trajectory. They evolved in North America uh, many millions of years ago, something like 45 million years ago. Mm-hmm. They follow the land bridges to other parts of the earth uh, over time and then become extinct in North America. So again, we just simply don't think of, of camels uh, as being part of the North American bestiary. But some of the animals that evolved here remained, and we certainly do think of them. I mean, the whole canid family, all the wolves, uh, all the jackals, all the coyotes come from North American evolution. And those become, of course, like horses and camels, one of the great contributions to mm. global animal life. If pronghorns, you note, uh, yes. seals and sea lions, or the animals that became seals and sea lions, beavers exactly. and squirrels. It's it's quite it's quite a bestiary, as you note, that it arises organically here in what would come to be known as the Americas. And then also, as you mentioned, there are these comings and goings, animals crossing the land bridge that connected America and Asia, going back and forth between America and Asia. And that had its own profound effect on the animal life, not just of, of America, but on the rest of the world, as, as you've kind of already hit upon. Well, indeed so. I mean, as long ago, for example, as uh, 30 million years ago, we began acquiring the ancestor of our deer, our elk. Most of the cervids, for example, come out of Asia, cross the land bridges to North America and become uh, an important part of the American bestiary. One of the most important animals that arrives, uh, and it comes about 17 million years ago, are the first elephants, the first mastodons and mammoths that come to give North America an animal life that's very much like that of Africa for a long time. One of the interesting arrivals, of course, that we think of as extremely important to and almost iconic in North America is the bison. Mm -hmm. But one of the interesting things about the bison arrival is that we know from recent uh, archaeological and genomic evidence that bison were actually pretty late arrivals. To North America, in contrast to things like uh, mastodons and mammoths that got here 17 million years ago, bison don't show up here until about 250,000 years ago. So compared to horses, for example, which we don't think of as native, bison are really recent in America. Yet we, because this is an animal that we found when Europeans arrived here, we think of them as a, a kind of a classic part of our bestiary. Yeah. And this is a really sweeping history that you tell here, Dan. So I want our listeners to be aware that we're going to we're going to be jumping through millions of years. One of the things that happens 2.8 million years ago in Africa is there's a new species evolving. They start off as apes. They start walking on two legs. They make tools. And importantly to the story that you tell here in your book, Dan, these animals, these proto-humans, and and they end up becoming humans, they end up becoming us, they transition from herbivores to meat-eaters. Can you explain how that fundamentally changed the relationship between early humans and animals and why that matters? One of the things that I attempt to track in Wild New World, especially in this, this early part of the book, in the process of bringing humans to North America uh, as a brand new migrant is to grapple with at what stage 
of our story do we begin to think of ourselves as exceptional, as being different from other creatures. Hmm. I try to track that story through being herbivores, through being scavengers, but we begin to occupy a different niche in nature, obviously, when we're predators. And it begins to give us, I think, some kind of sense that the world is becoming ours, that through group action, through the invention of tools, and through the ever-growing brains that a protein meat-based diet allows us to grow, it's possible for us to begin to see ourselves as somewhat different from the animals that we're hunting and that we're coexisting with. That's a story that I try to tell through the emergence of groups of humans who start traveling outside Africa mm-hmm. in search of animals that had not ever been hunted before. That seems to be the primary driver for why we leave Africa, go to Europe, go to Asia, and ultimately end up in North America, is we're looking for these creatures that are biologically naive about us. Yeah, so we're in search of prey, we're in, we're in search of animals that we can consume, um, we leave Africa, we go into Asia, and we start exploring the world for what, how it can feed us with these tools in hand. And as you note, you say, how could, could these humans not have developed some sense that they were superior to all they beheld, a master life form in a world brimming with creatures now delivered into their grasp? Yeah. So they were consuming these creatures, and they may have had some um, sense of um, of a hierarchy developing, um, but at the same time, as 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 you describe in the book, they had a different relationship with the animals, and you could see this in their in their art. In in the earliest art that we have, it's not of humans; it's of animals. Can you talk about why that's important? That early art, and you know, we're we're beginning to think that. Uh, the Neanderthals and Denosovan who preceded us out of Africa into Europe and Asia, and uh, who we ultimately, 60 to 40,000 years ago, seem to have replaced. Mm-hmm. Those groups, along with early modern humans, must have carried on from the Neanderthal sensibility this idea that the animals they coexisted with and hunted and observed on a daily basis were somewhat godlike in a way. Hmm. I mean, that that early art, especially, I mean, the best of it is, at least the best of it we found so far is in Western Europe. It dates back to 35,000 years ago. And it portrays animals as being almost like gods and the things in the world that we paid the most attention to. Hmm. I mean, an intimate attention to. We even got, for example, the sequence of steps by quadrupeds down in that arc, how their hmm. feet hit the ground, the way they breathe, the way their sides heave when they're expelling a frosty breath into the air. I mean, it's, hmm. it's really a remarkable, almost Picasso-like reproduction of the creatures of the time where it's very clear that the humans themselves are absolutely in awe of these animals. And one of the things that appears in almost every instance of cave art is what archaeologists refer to as a therianthrope. Hmm. 
mm. which means a creature that is part animal and part human animal. The melding of a bison and a woman, for example, in Chauve Cave is one of the classic therianthropes of this early human art, where we clearly see ourselves capable of somehow transmogrifying from the human side of the story into the animal side of the story. And it's that sense of kinship, I think, that informs the way early humans think of animals uh, right down to probably the last few hundred years. So we're going to fast forward millions of years from the evolution of humans and the development of hunting about 13,000 years ago. When America is home to, among others, mammoths and mastodons and giant bison, saber-toothed cats, llamas, pronghorns, dire wolves, coyotes, American cheetahs, step lions, giant jaguars. And then there's another newcomer, a new predator on the scene. And this was, this was us, the Clovis people. What do we know about the Clovis people? What do we know about them? Well, the Clovis people very definitely were us. Mm. Um, they had our brains, our physicality, our athletic abilities. I mean, they were us. But they had skills that uh, modern humans probably largely lack based mm -hmm. on the fact that they came from 40,000 generations of prior ancestors who had been hunters. Mm. And so... One thing you can say about the Clovis people who arrived about a little more than 13,000 years ago, they seem to have traveled across the Americas very, very rapidly. Within mm. 300 years, they seem to have gone from Alaska all the way to the tip of South America. One of the interesting things about the Clovis people is that they make up our first coast-to-coast -coast American culture. I mean, we have found thousands of their points everywhere from Florida to New England to California to Alaska and everywhere in between. And so they occupy basically the same country that the United States now drapes across, hmm. except they did this 13,000 years ago. Uh, the Clovis culture was around for at least 300, 350 or so years, which is about a century longer than the United States has been around. It's hmm. basically the first version of America with a coast-to-coast -coast culture. And the people are largely hunters of these large Pleistocene animals that still existed in America at that time. And how did those animals react to seeing this upright bipedal creature? And what was the result? You, you mentioned this idea of biological first encounter. It's, you mentioned also how they were humans were seeking out naive animals. This is this is that idea of naivete. When you run into an animal for the first time, it, it doesn't know to be afraid of a two-legged, upright, weirdo-looking thing carrying something in its whatever. Like they, <laughs> and, and that doesn't work out very well for the animals here. Well, there's good evidence actually from around the globe from the kind of landscape and animal art that cultures almost everywhere around the globe prefer that the search for undisturbed areas that other humans had not gotten to before and animals that are completely naive about us, who, as you suggested, 
don't recognize an upright predator as a danger to them, that that particular idea, it's referred to as biological first contact, is one of the things that seems to drive people ever migrating and moving around the world in search of animals that bring this kind of naive, innocent presence to human hunters. And when that happens, it becomes almost ridiculously easy for humans to kill, especially human hunters who are as skilled as these people, Mm. to kill these animals. Now, I will say one of the things that that I do in in the chapter, uh, Clovisia the Beautiful, is not necessarily to argue that humans are the sole cause for the wave of extinctions that sweeps across the Americas following the arrival of the Clovis people. I mean, we've for a long time debated exactly what happened to the great charismatic animals of the Pleistocene, the, mm-hmm. all the predators and the prey that they pursued, the elephants, for example, as a classic instance of that. Because what we're beginning to think is that some other causes were playing a role, that some animals, dire wolves, for example, may have simply been outcompeted by the arrival of American wolves who had gone to Eurasia and now were returning Hmm. about 30,000 years ago and Mm -hmm. were much better at at the game of, of hunting than dire wolves were. So we know that there were some animals that were outcompeted, and we're now beginning to suspect that as human hunters swept in, they may have isolated populations of animals in disparate, discrete places where they couldn't exchange their genes. And as a result, we may have had this kind of genomic uh, meltdown factor playing a role in the extinctions, even on the mainland as well. You note in your book that by the time the destruction was over, and and you write about what a brilliant predator we were, and we brought weapons and dogs and fire and changed local ecologies. We wielded the sword of extermination as we advanced. Uh, One writer once opined. But by the time the Clovis people had, you know, in 3,000 years, you say the Clovis people had erased millions of years of evolution and only a handful of America's biggest animals remained. And there were vast extinctions along the way, perhaps to uh, various causes, but eventually many of the animals had disappeared or uh, disappeared. Uh, At least the numbers were greatly diminished from what they once had been. And I wonder, do you think they saw that coming? Do you think they had a sense that that these, these people, did they have a sense that they were impacting populations? Or was that impossible for them to conceive? It's it's hard to say exactly how they thought of it. I think, uh, you know, obviously the, the last generations who were around when uh, there were no more mammoths, they understood that there had been a profound change. And through material causes solely, they were forced to, to adopt a new strategy I mean, the first strategy after the mammoths were gone was to concentrate on on the giant bison. That's who the the Folsom hunters were who followed the Clovis people. So it's difficult to say. I mean, clearly they, I mean, obviously they had had oral traditions and stories and histories that they told one another uh, that would have probably been carried down the timeline uh, many, many generations uh, they clearly seemed to realize as they were moving out of Africa into Europe and Asia and then into the Americas that 
some places behind them were being used up, Mm. at least being used up of naive populations of animals. And as the animals became more wary, they tended to move on to try to find populations of animals that that weren't. So they had that. It's it's clear that they had that sense of it. We don't have much of an idea, though. And I know this is unsatisfactory and I wish I I had more, but uh, we frankly just don't know a huge amount about uh, the Clovis people or the Folsom people either, for that matter, in terms of their philosophies or their religions or what they thought about what they were doing. And part of that is because, strangely enough, they left us very little art in the Americas. In contrast Mm -hmm. to Western Europe, where these Pleistocene era Picassos are doing these remarkable cave paintings, we didn't end up with that sort of thing in America. So we don't have very much this tangible to go on about how they thought about what was happening around them and what effect they were they were having on the world. I mean, what we do know is that once the mammoths are gone, they transition to giant bison. Once the giant bison are gone, they transition to the next species in, in line. And so they clearly were capable, as humans are, of adapting to change and moving on and trying something different. I personally have to think that there were those among the Clovis people who understood what was happening. That maybe has been true of humans uh, from the very beginning. It certainly seems to be true of humans today. The great majority of people pay little attention to what's going on in the larger world. They're concentrating on their individual lives and their families and their work and all that. But there are those who sit and imagine the big picture. And I can't but suspect that there were Clovis people who confronting this gradually dwindling population of big animals sit on a hilltop somewhere and ponder what all that meant. Dan Flores. His new book is Wild New World, the epic story of animals and people in America. We'll take a brief break. Back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. If you're a member of KUER, thank you so much. If you're looking for another way to support this station, consider donating a vehicle you no longer need. Your unwanted vehicle can drive KUER forward. It's easy, it's free to you, and the proceeds really do help KUER bring you the news you count on. Learn more and get started today at KUER.org vehicle. This is Radio West. I'm Benjamin Bombard, sitting in for Doug Fabrizio. Today on the program, the writer Dan Flores is taking us through his new book, Wild New World, about the deep history of animals and people in America. As Flores writes, it's a lopsided history. The success of humans here has come largely at the expense of the animals of North America, with one very notable period of exception that lasted 3,000 years. So as recently as 10,000 years ago, as you write, people are here, but most of the original animals are not. They're gone. They're extinct for various reasons, as you said. What follows is a kind of, it seems to me like a Pax Animalia, kind of like 10,000 years during which people and animals live 
and if not harmony, then then at least something like balance. And the result, as as you note in your book, is a kind of ecological renaissance in America, where numbers of of the animals start to rebound, and humans live in 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 balance with them. Can you describe what happens next? This is in this part of your book. You call it Raven and Coyotes America. I call that that ten thousand year story of Native America, Ravens and Coyotes America, because uh, those were two of the prominent deities of the time. Uh, there were many others, but uh, we have probably more Raven and Coyote stories uh, than stories from any other of these ancient American deities. And so, I was able to call on on some of those stories to try to explain how how this worked and what the stories that have been preserved through Raven and Coyote deity accounts tell us about this very, very long period of time. I mean, this so this is a much longer period of time than the previous period. I mean, we only had the Clovis and Folsom people uh, around for about 3,000 years altogether. Mm-hmm. Now we've got a period of time that is three times plus longer than that, in which Native people managed to spread across the entire continent. But there is a kind of, as you suggest, a kind of an equilibrium, a sort of a balance that comes to prevail. And one of the things that I tried to do with this chapter was to, uh, to explain that. The chapter starts when I go out to a buffalo jump in Montana and uh, before the sun comes up uh, one morning, I climb uh, up on this high butte uh, at the foot of which we know that for hundreds of years, people had uh, had driven buffalo off and, and they had piled up several feet. The bones are several feet deep at the base of this particular cliff. And I sort of recreated by running it what a buffalo jump would have been like. And this mm-hmm. is a method of, of taking animals that it's very difficult to control how many animals are going to go off a cliff. You're driving a herd. There may be 300 animals in it. You may only need 10, but it's difficult to cut out 10 and have them go off the cliff. You may end up driving 250 of the 300 animals off the cliff. And so that seemed to me to be a method of hunting that's found uh, up and down the American West from Canada all the way almost to the Mexican border that didn't imply necessarily a balance. And so I start with that Mm. story and then try to use that as an avenue into attempting to discern how this worked and why it was successful over such a long period of time. And I came to, to several different realizations and explanations for it. I mean, one of the ones is that even after the invention of agriculture comes to the Americas, which has the effects of usually producing larger numbers of people, mm-hmm. even after that, there still are fewer than 5 million people living in America between the Rio Grande River and Alaska. This is a part of of the globe right now between the United States and Canada that has a population of 400 million people, Mm. not 5 million people, 400 million. So one of the ways that this 10,000-year period works is that these people understand that as hunters and gatherers, you have to deliberately keep your populations at a low level Mm. 
so that the largesse of the natural world is not being overreached. So they very deliberately, and I talk about some of the techniques that they use to do this, they very mm-hmm. deliberately attempt to keep their population low, something that in the modern age, of course, we completely make no effort at whatsoever. Yeah, and some of that deliberate attempt you mentioned is probably not very palatable today. It involved infanticide, among among other uh, methods. Um, I, but I wonder Indeed. what the, the role of of storytelling and you know the the, the continued relationship of, of kinship that was kindled between humans and animals and what role that may have played in maintaining an equitable maybe or um, balanced relationship with the natural world. It seems to have been based in respect. It was based in respect. And I think um, there's no question it was a, it played a critical, this played a critical role in producing what we can look at as a 10,000 year success on the part of people who were living in North America. And what I argue in the book and, and what I uh, have thought about even since writing Wild New World is that as best I could conclude, this is a continuation of that kind of feeling about the kinship between humans and other animals that went deeply back into time. Mm. And I think something like that, some form of that, despite obvious examples of overreach on the part of some groups like the Clovis people, perhaps. But some form of that sense of kinship is very clear in the culture hero stories of all kinds of native people and in the ceremonies that they were still performing up until, in some cases, a century ago. And probably, Mm -hmm. I mean, I've watched ceremonies here in New Mexico that seem to be a continuation of these kinship models that date back in time. But they're all based around the idea, the therianthrope idea, in fact, that humans and other animals are, in effect, the same. And humans can transmigrate from the human culture to an animal culture. They can take on other creatures as wives and husbands. They can become part of animal families mm-hmm. and the ceremonies that we have preserved in America from this time period convey that beautifully. I mean, one of the things that I, I tell uh, in this particular chapter is about these ceremonies, particularly in the Midwest and on the Northern Plains by peoples who began when they would worry that animals were getting hard to find, that they were disappearing at Buffalo, for instance, were not showing up near their villages to allow themselves to be taken by human hunters, their reaction to that would be to perform a series of ceremonies to convey to the buffalo that they still regarded them as kin, they still respected them. And if they did these ceremonies well, you showed proper respect, as some of the ceremonies put it, the animals would come dancing. The animals would once again surrender themselves to you because they recognized that humans were not making themselves separate and exceptional from the other creatures of the world. Dan Flores. His new book is Wild New World, the epic story of animals and people in America. We'll take a break. Back in a minute. You're listening to Radio West.
KUER has a new way for you to communicate with us. We're calling it Tell KUER. Tell KUER is a feature in our mobile app that allows you to send voice messages to the station. Let us know how we're doing, why you listen, or what you'd like to hear more of. Got an idea for a local news story? It's a great place to drop us a line about that, too. Send us a voice message with Tell KUER and find it in the menu of KUER's mobile app. This is Radio West. I'm Benjamin Bombard, sitting in for Doug Fabrizio. Back now to our conversation with the writer and historian Dan Flores. We're talking about his book, Wild New World, the epic story of animals and people in America. For thousands of years, America was isolated. Extinction was nearly unheard of. There was maybe one occasion. And no one you write on either side of the Atlantic, knew that the other existed. Europeans had no idea about the Americas. Americans had no idea about Europeans. That bubble was popped. And the result, quoting you here, was one of the most profound tragedies in all of history. And colonizers, of course, arrive. They have a devastating impacts on uh, the Native American population, <coughs> the humans. They also have a devastating impact. And, and this is a large portion of your book here. And I apologize. We're not going to have time to get into it in too great of depth now, but they have a, an incredible impact a devastating impact on the wildlife of this country, which at the time when they arrive as uh, you quote, one English writer here, a colonizer who arrived, there were deer, a great many bears. They were, they be common squirrels. there be the greatest plenty moose. So fruitful, a great store of them. Wild turkeys, 43 score and hundred of a flock ducks, geese, and partridges in great abundance. There was an abundance of wildlife here, which there wasn't in Europe and England uh, where these colonizers came from. So they bring a kind of maybe a lust for animal life that was latent in them. They bring the hunter's instinct and they also bring with them this what turns out to be a very pernicious idea for American wildlife, and that's exploitation for capital gain. You mentioned previously that Native Americans had a, a conception of the natural world, that they, they were a part of it, not separate and, and exceptional. But Europeans arrive, and they very much have the conception of the natural world and themselves as they, the human beings being separate and exceptional. And that gives us a right to exploit the resources here. Can you talk a bit about how that wreaks havoc on American wildlife? Well, the, uh, the global market story, which begins 500 years ago with, with European arrival, is uh, that's a, a major part of the book. Uh, and so I go to some effort to, to understand what accounts for it. And one of the obvious places to start is with the religion that Old worlders, uh, Europeans in particular, bring to North America because they have absorbed, Europeans have absorbed uh, in the previous 2000 years, a religion that comes out of the Middle East that basically is a herding religion. Mm -hmm. And it posits that humans alone among all the creatures of the earth are made in the image of a deity who lives in the sky and that. Humans, therefore, are exceptional among all creatures. We're the only ones made in the image of this deity. We're the only ones with what we call uh, an immortal soul. But the other thing that plays into this kind of ideology is, as Genesis says, all other animals are made for you to use. Into your hand are they delivered. 
mm-hmm. the line goes. And so with a market economy that is powering the colonial period, these Europeans and old worlders of several different nationalities arrive with the idea that all of these animals in North America are no different since they lack souls. They're no different from trees, gold, silver, potash, anything that you can exploit as a natural resource. Animals are the same thing. They're just commodities in the global market economy. And they happen to be the one commodity that Europeans realize they can prevail upon the native people to harvest for them. Because the native people find themselves in a kind of almost absurd situation. Not only has perhaps as much as 80 to 90% of their population gotten wiped out by European diseases to which they have no immunities, but they also are being presented with a level of technology that, frankly, Native Americans can't produce and are willing to give up almost anything to possess because the metal revolution is a huge step for people who come from using flint. And if you don't engage in it, the people down the river certainly are going to do so. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things native people discover quickly is that in order to keep up with the transformation that's happening, you've got to engage in this global market trade. And the one thing that they can trade that the Europeans want are the parts of animals, the skins of beavers, martens, mink, sea otters. I mean, the list goes on and on. Ultimately, buffalo robes are going to be a part of it. And this whole market economy is going to have this insidious effect of capturing Native people into the process. And of course, when you're regarding animals as soulless creatures that are only worth whatever body parts you can sell in the market, I mean, you're setting everything up for what I describe in the book as, frankly, the largest destruction of animal life discoverable anywhere in world history takes place in America between about 1600 and 1900. When you discuss the uh, decimation of the bison herds, which you note is a shorthand for the country's environmental history of the past five centuries, our epic of decline and loss. Yeah. And after the, the buffalo are, are just cut down by the millions and millions, you quote a, a buffalo hunter, Frank Mayer, who, who gives his assessment of, of why that happened. Maybe we were just a greedy lot who wanted to get ours into hell with posterity, the buffalo, and anyone else. I think that might have been the way it was. And you don't pull any punches when regarding the actions of of people in uh, the last 500 years and and their extermination in many ways of America's animals. You say here in in two simple words, effing pathetic. Yeah. Why? Yes. Well, so one of the the chapters in the book uh, on the colonial period it's called To Know an Entire Heaven and an Entire Earth. Mm-hmm. And it's based, based on a journal entry that Henry David Thoreau penned in 1856. He had been studying the journals of uh, his predecessors in colonial Massachusetts and realizing all these animals that they saw and they had experiences with 
And Thoreau came to the conclusion, as he put it in this passage, I am that citizen whom I pity. And what he said was, it's like some demigod has come before me and plucked from the heavens the best of the stars. And he concludes this passage with the line, I wish to know an entire heaven and an entire earth. And I think that's what the greed and the selfishness of these generations who have gone before us have essentially bequeathed us. I mean, we don't get to experience an entire heaven and an entire earth in America. I dare say most Americans, because they don't know these stories, don't even know what an entire earth might be. We just sort of assume that what we have now is perfectly normal. It's as if 200 years from now, earthlings, Americans, no doubt, are going to look around them and not even realize that the earth has gotten overheated. They're going to just assume that, wow, everything is fine. And they're not going to realize that they have been disfranchised in their appreciation and their understanding of an entire heaven and an entire earth by the previous generations of humans who have come before them. And so I think that's kind of where we are. I mean, uh, as you know, I end the book sort of on an optimistic note because I do think that 50 years ago next year, uh, 1973 precisely, when we passed the Endangered Species Act, we actually, we Americans actually come up with a Hail Mary that begins to stop and turn this process of destruction around so that we're not only trying to protect other species' right to exist, but we're actually trying to recover them and return them to the world. But, I mean, I do have to confront, what do I think about, because I, in the last, uh, in the epilogue, I go to Walden and I walk around Walden Pond oh, and try to place. Yeah, interact with, with what I think Thoreau would be saying now. And, and when I come to my own sort of assessment of how to do this, what I write in the last two or three pages of the book is that, well, there's nothing I can really do about the fact that my grandparents saw passenger pigeons and I don't get to see them. But what I think I can do is while knowing this story and regretting what has happened and doing whatever I can to stop the continuation of it, I can at least in my own time do everything possible to interact with the animals that are still there. And that's how I end the book. Dan, there are so many more stories, so much to your book. I, I feel like we've um, disenfranchised our listeners and left them with an, uh, a less than entire experience of your book. So I, I really do hope they pick it up. And thank you so much for joining us to talk about it. Thank you, Ben. It's been my pleasure. Dan Flores. He's a writer and professor emeritus of Western history at the University of Montana. His new book is Wild New World, The Epic Story of Animals and People in America. Radio West is a production of KUER. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet us at Radio West. The program is produced by myself and Tim Slover. Carrie Watson is our executive producer, along with our host, Doug Fabrizio. I'm Benjamin Bombard. <laughs>